Welcome to the Channel 17 podcast, brought to you by the Productive Leisure Network online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on Facebook and Twitter, at Prod Leisure. I'm your host, Will Floyd, and joining me as always, but this time in person, my father, Tim Floyd. This time it really is great to be with you, because I'm really with you, so yes. good, Will. Uh, and we are actually in the greater Atlanta area today. I am visiting. So uh, for that occasion, we are starting our recap of all Brave seasons by not talking about an Atlanta Braves team. That's how that's going to work. But um, we are kicking off our off-season plan to go through Braves history a season at a time. And we're doing it with the 1914 Boston Braves, the first Braves team to win the World Series. But before we talk about uh, baseball from over 100 years ago, there is a little bit of news since we last talked. The Braves signed Bartolo Colon, which makes them have two very fascinating plus 40-plus pitchers. Yeah, when we talked last week, we were uh, talking about the most recent signing, which was R.A. Dickey. I never would have predicted a week ago that they signed another pitcher this week who was even older than R.A. Dickey. Uh, I don't suppose there's ever been a time in my memory when the team has signed two pitchers in their 40s in the same week. They didn't sign. Uh, didn't they have... They've had two pitchers, but I mean, they, they, they did. And um, there may even be other times, although I don't remember it, but um, to actually go out and acquire two pitchers in their 40s is pretty odd. I wonder if that's ever happened for any franchise um, to bring in new pitchers that age. But I also think it makes sense because the Braves have a lot of young pitching that isn't quite ready to be the full staff. Oh, I, I agree completely. Th- this... Um, I don't know what they're going to get out of either of these guys, but, you know, they're both still pitching pretty well. Dickey's not quite as good as he was in his Cy Young year. What was that? No, four or five years ago, I guess. Um, But I looked at his numbers. They're not bad. He still pitches a lot of innings, um, and getting out of the American League East might help him out. Uh, He might be pretty good, and Cologne just seems to be the same guy year after year. I don't know how he does it. It doesn't make sense to me, but he's still been a quite effective pitcher. Um, but what I love about it is this is what you're starting to say. The Braves needed rotation help. Um, as, as good as their young pitching can be and the prospects they have, a lot of them aren't ready yet. In fact, I'm not sure any of them are quite ready yet. Given that, they really needed to shore up the rotation, but I hated to see them sign some guys who really aren't all that great for the next three or four years. Obviously, I don't expect we'll be seeing R.A. Dickey or, or Bartolo Colon on the Braves' mound three years from now, probably not two years from now, maybe not even in August. (laughs) They might have some value at the trade deadline this year. Right, and it it kind of allows the Braves to have the season go a lot of ways if one of those guys doesn't work out, but Tenowitz or Whistler steps up, then you are able to get rid of one of them. Or if the young guys don't come through and you're getting solid enough pitching from the old guys, you don't have a disaster in the rotation. It, it, it makes just a world of sense. I'm really pleased with it. Now, it may be the Braves aren't through. All the websites I read that have trade rumors uh, keep talking about the Braves in the hunt for maybe Chris Sale or maybe Chris Archer or maybe Sonny Gray. So it may be when we talk again, there's another Braves pitcher signing to talk about. But if they don't sign anybody else for the rotation, um, this, this is still a pretty good way to go. Uh, they have an awful lot of guys that pitched last year Almost all of them were really lousy. I mean, not Tehran. Uh, he pitched excellent. 
Uh, Fulton Evich made a step forward. I'm thinking he might be pretty good, but I think we talked about this last week. Everybody else who started for them had an ERA close to five or more. Um, if any, but there are a bunch of them. Uh, in addition to Whistler, you mentioned and Blair and Gant, um, Williams Perez, you know, probably going to come back. Um, that, and if Williams Perez needs to model his life on anyone in the majors, it's Bartolo Colon. Well, that that may be that just what he model. needs, right? Um, actually, you shouldn't model your life on Bartolo Colon, but your pitching. Yeah. Uh, similar body type. I'll give you that. Yes. Um, similar lack of a breaking pitch at this point. Yeah. Um, there are also going to be all sorts of fun stats about how much older Bartolo Colon is than all of the youngsters coming up. Uh, what year did he make his debut? Do you know off the top of your head? No. Um, um, he, certainly he signed his first professional contract before a lot of the Braves roster was even born, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's clearly true. In fact, if he signed his contract in his teens, and I know he did, and what is he, 43? Yeah. Um, all of the other Braves pitchers were not even born yet at that point, right? Even Tehran is 25, and the, the other pitchers, mm-hmm. Tomat Fulton Evich and Whistler and all the rest of these guys are younger than that. And it's kind of amazing. And that's pretty about, fun. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to think about these two old guys with a very young staff otherwise. But, again, what they really need are dependable innings. Right. And that's what – they are built for at at some point Cologne's not going to be able to do this anymore I would have said that five years ago <laughs> but yeah. he's, he's been essentially the same pitcher and quite effective year after year and so why not um, you know he is he is the best example I, I can think of of the Leo Mazzoni philosophy if you can command the fastball everything else will be all right because that's all he does yeah but he throws it exactly where he wants he doesn't throw it all that hard <laughs> but he moves it around and he it's always just where he wants it to be, and he gets people out. Yeah, you can't ever hit the ball that hard off of him. Right. Um, also, we get his ridiculous batting. To well, I look forward to that. <laughs> uh, but we are going through uh, our plan for the season. Yeah, you, you said we're going to go season. through um, season by season. Uh, I think you did not mean we're going to do every season since no. 1914. We're doing significant seasons Good. in Braves history. Most of them will be Atlanta Braves teams because you don't really care about the other ones. I assume most of our listeners are not all that and, interested, but we're yes. th- th- this this is a history site in part, and we're, we're going to do some of that. Well, and it's also uh, 1914 is the first Braves World Series win, and the franchise still celebrates it, oh, which yeah. also brings up the strange thing. The Braves are one of the few teams that have moved that counts their records from 1876. Oh, yeah, the Braves, you know, claim to be the oldest continuous franchise um, in the National League. Cincinnati's the oldest, but, um, you know, the Braves say we are we have been well, no, the Braves. Cincinnati was the first team and then fell off. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. The Braves say that we are the longest well, continuously Well, because actually a lot franchise. of these successful Cincinnati Red Stockings, who were the very first professional team in 1869 and 1870, yeah. ended up in Boston. Yeah. on the team that would become the Braves. Right. And they were initially known as the Boston Red Stockings. Right. They were one of the best teams in the 19th century. They also became known as variously the Bean Eaters and um, other terms. And basically around 1900, they went from being one of the model franchises. And then the American League showed up, and they were an also-ran. Yeah, you know, the 20th century history of our Braves franchise 
we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about the pre-Atlanta years because they were mostly pretty yes. lean. At least the Boston years, there's the one world championship to show for it, and that's the one we're going to talk they, about. They went on to win a pennant in 1948, which we're not talking about because we're beating up to Atlanta. But the 1914 team was one of the biggest surprise teams ever. The Miracle Braves. The, Everybody still calls them that. I mean, really, the team was so bad going into this that they had actually compiled a record previously in 1913 of 69 and 82. Right. And people probably thought they were lucky to yeah, get there. That was, that was kind of typical of the Braves. They hadn't done better than that. That's they, who they were. They were a lousy franchise. They, they had be, only become the Braves in 1912. Um, before that, they were known as, as I mentioned, the Bean Eaters in the 19th century. Before that became pejorative in a totally other context. Then they were known as the Rustlers because they had an owner named Russell. They were known as the Doves because another owner was a committed pacifist. <laughs> and did, they did not became the Braves because they got owned by a consortium that had connections to Tammany Hall whose symbol was the Native American chief Tammany. It, okay. That's why we have it. I, I did not know that, Will. Uh, That's what I love about this podcast. Well, I but the so other much. thing, point about this, <laughs> uh, other teams that were good in the era, like the Pirates and the Giants, had those names stick with them from the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, the, the Braves, Braves th were not the kind of team that stuck with an identity Yeah. But until 1914. In 1914 was a significant year. It was probably still the greatest comeback uh, in the middle of a season by mm -hmm. a team in Major League history, right? So the basic outline of this uh, season is that they started horribly. The 1914 Braves actually lost uh, 10 of their first 13 games. So familiar That's to current Braves fans. Sounds and a lot like last year. Yes. The famous thing is that after July 4th, they were 26 and 40, and in last place. They finished the year 94 and 59, and in first place by 10 and a half games. So after being in last place on July 4th, they won the pennant in the end by 10 and a half games yes. by the beginning of October. They're still the only team in Major League history to go from last place on July 4th to first place at the end of the year, right? Absolutely. They they are an inspiration to all lousy teams for all time. That's one reason they are so co compelling even today, especially to teams like the Braves that are going through this rebuilding and have been pretty bad. Um, things can turn around in a hurry. We have our, our great worst of first story, and of course we'll talk about the 91 Braves a little bit later in this, and I'm looking forward to yes. that, my favorite season. But the 1914 Braves are the original inspiration. Because to go from worst to first in the middle of the year uh, was pretty phenomenal. Now, if I'm doing the arithmetic right, does that mean they went 70 and 19 in the second after their awful start? Uh, I, yes. I think that's right. That's might have done better actually. That's phenomenal. Um, so it's not like any team can just say, "Oh well, we're we're 14 games under 500. We won't have any problem." You got to win at an incredible pace. Um, that's that's hardly ever been duplicated. I would 69 imagine. Sixty-nine and forty. Okay, uh, but and I think good. the real kind of important thing about this team is that it's not just a miracle that they were bad and got good. It's a miracle that this team could play that well at all. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to and we should go ahead and mention they won the World Series in a clean sweep over the best team at the time, the Philadelphia right. Athletics, who had the so-called hundred thousand dollar infield, which had was rife with Hall of Famers like Eddie Collins and Homer and Baker and like great players. Right. Huge upset. That winning yes. the pennant was an upset. Sweeping Philadelphia uh, in the World Series is a big the upset. The 1914 Braves lineup, uh, behind the plate was mostly Hank Gowdy, who was a 24-year-old. All-star caliber player, one of the great defensive Good catchers defensive of all catcher. time. And has gotten a lot of Hall of Fame votes over the years he to hit come up short. 243, 337, 347 triple slash, but baseball reference gives that an OPS plus of 100. So he was a that, league average that, hitter. That's, that's a... That's a pretty interesting yes, stat. This is, As we talk about 1914, we have to remember that really is the, the heart yeah. of the dead ball era. So that numbers that sound as bad as that were league average The recalibrated dead ball. Right. Um, and basically after fielding improved a lot and equipment improved at the beginning of the 20th century. Right. There became a point 1910, 1911 where batting averages shot up. This is when... Ty Cobb hit 420 one year. Joe Jackson hit 400 twice. Right. And then uh, people discovered that if you scuffed the ball, you could do all sorts of crazy things with it. And there basically wasn't a baseball in play that wasn't horribly battered and spit on and gross. Right. And so this is sort of the retrenchment of the dead ball era. And this team did not score any runs, but they were able to win. Yeah, it, it was very much a defensive-oriented team, a team with excellent starting pitching which, again, is something that current Braves fans maybe should take heart from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, get, you get a good starting rotation. You feel the ball well, especially up the middle. You can win a lot of baseball games. Uh, their first baseman was Butch Schmidt. If you were a baseball fan in 1920, that might be a difficult name to remember, and that's a lot of these. But their double play combination was Johnny Evers and Rabbit Marinville, who are both Hall of Famers, although suspect in a way. Oh, but... We'll take it. Any yeah. Braves that's in the hall. And in uh, fact, they were both stars. And they were actually the key. They were very different. Marinville was 22. He was a brilliant defensive shortstop. I mean, he's up there with Ozzie Smith. Um, I think most people would say he was the best defensive you know, shortstop Luke and those of guys. his era, maybe of all time, before Ozzie Smith and Andrelton Simmons. But yes. he's one of the, the all-time greats. He, but we're talking that – we're not just saying he was solid up the middle. He was right. great. Right. And Evers was a gold glove shortstop or gold glove second baseman who got on base and was most famous as the second baseman for those great Cubs teams, which you have heard a lot about because they were the last teams to win the World Series on the north side of Chicago, uh, of Tinker to Evers to Chance. Which they did win in 07 and 08. As you're right. Everybody in the country is aware the Cubs yes. won in 08. Um, Evers was not on the Cubs anymore because actually he had a nervous breakdown in 1911 and missed a lot of the season. And he was apparently just a nervous ball of energy. Frank Chance, his uh, former manager and first baseman, said that he was a hell of a ball player, but he wished he had been an outfielder because he had to listen to him all game. <laughs> but when you have two brilliant middle infielders, and Marinville wasn't totally punchless for the time, Evers actually got on base. He, had, he hit 279 with a 390 on base because he walked 87 That's, that's excellent. This is when we talk about dead ball era. It's true. Batting averages had gone up some during this time period. Nobody was hitting home runs then. No. So slugging percentages are necessarily um, going to be a lot lower. And this is also where we actually get into the genius of 1914 Braves manager George Stallings, who is a Georgia native from Augusta, but 
Stallings was a kind of blah player who ended up being a really brilliant manager by moving pieces around. The outfielders on this team were Larry Gilbert, Les Mann, Joe Connolly, and in backup positions, Possum Witted, Herbie Moran, and Ted Cather. These were not names at the time. No, this is not someone not that 1914 baseball fans would have been like, oh, that's really great. Uh, Joe Connolly was okay, and he had a great season that year. But basically, Stallings mixed and matched all over the field except for shortstop and catcher. And, and, platooned. and he is the first manager to use the platoon on a regular basis, right? Yes. In this season. That's what and I've we read. We should also say it was a much more difficult sell then because platoon as a term actually came about when two-platoon football existed in the 40s. Right. They did not. T- they did not use the phrase platoon in nineteen. No, it was sit a guy down against lefties. So okay, it was hard to sell it to people. But Stallings had a team that was not supposed to do anything, and so he got this opportunity to shift it around. And that would have made a difference. Yeah. Well, it's also he just needed to scrap out runs because he had this great defense and a good pitching staff yeah, uh, yeah I've been reading up a little bit on this team in preparation for this and the, the far and away the most striking thing about this team is that they had three starting pitchers that had really great seasons especially obviously in the second half and they rode those guys all the way to the pennant um, they had some great stretches in the second half where they were giving up almost no runs part of that of course is the great defense Hank Gowdy, we talk about having an excellent defensive catcher. Having a great defensive catcher was much more important in this era because there were so many more stolen base attempts. Mm-hmm. Bunning was such a bigger part of the game where they had to jump out from behind the plate. Um, having a defensive catcher made a big difference, and they had a really good one. And, and this is also, of course, an era where everybody started and everybody relieved. Right. Um, the only person, in fact who did not do both for this team. Uh, There were two. One got nine games, Hub Purdue, and he presumably was only in the first half because he lost a lot. And then one guy who started one time, Ensign Cottrell. Otherwise, everybody went back and forth, but the main starters were Dick Rudolph, who was 26 and had been an okay pitcher before then. Bill James, who was 22, is of no relation to the great baseball writer. And basically did nothing else ever again he was from the west coast and i think he might have gone back there he might have hurt his arm i I think pretty clearly he did hurt his arm everything i've read and i've always been interested in this bill james pitcher just because i became so interested in the bill james baseball writer um that the coincidence of the name struck me a while back uh this guy bill james was how old was he in this season he's 22 22 um never really was any good again never pitched much at all in the major leagues again well he blew his arm out one thing stallings did was he rode his three starters with really a three-man rotation down the stretch and in august and september um and they they held up and they did great and they they blanked um the the a's in the world series it was it was in base almost entirely on yeah. their starting and the pitching. third one was lefty tyler oh right um, those three the lefty of the rotation uh, he was the worst of the three with a 2.69 ERA, which, to be fair, was only a 1.06 ERA plus according to Baseball Reference. But right. This but, is but, a guy who was like behind the others while still being pretty brilliant. 
and, and they all pitched better in the second half. Again, you yeah. would expect that given the team's record. The reason they won such a huge percentage of their games in the, in the last three months of the season was they were just not giving up runs. They didn't score that many. They scored enough. Um, Rabbit and Moranville, I think, led the team in RBIs with 70-something. Um, and he was not much of a hitter, no. but he was batting in the middle of the order, and there were a few people getting on uh, base ahead yeah, of him. Yeah, he had 78. Yeah. Then again, very few people played as much as he did. He had the most games by far. Uh, Evers had 139, Butch Schmidt had 147, Gowdy had 128. In the outfield, Les Mann had 126, and Joe Connolly had 120. And then no one else really had – it was all 60s and 70s games played. Well, that's Stallings mixing Stallings and matching, rotating. right? And, uh, you know, obviously – Making the most of his roster. Yeah. That's obviously a Casey Stingle trait. That's a Earl Weaver trait. Bobby Cox was usually pretty good about mm-hmm. that. Um, a lot of the managers I've th- always thought were great did that. But he was the first to really do that then, huh? Yeah, I mean, th- this is an era in which – this is around the time they started to realize that you should have a roster limit. Because, like, in the 19th century, it was a miracle that you could get 12 guys to show up regularly. Is that right? And then it became, well, maybe we'll just have 18 to save money. And slowly, you know, any manager, if it's not his worry about cost, will say, well, I'd like to be able to have five guys that are just pinch runners and a huge bullpen. And so this is the era where they first really put limits on it. But mostly it was guys like John McGraw who really thought, I'll have a pinch runner until this guy's ready to play every day. Uh, this is really the team that starts using everybody. Well, um, it, it's a team that obviously it's not – they didn't have that much in the way of new players for that year. Moranville had been a rookie the year before, although came on really strong and everyone knew he was good. This was the first year they had – you keep saying Evers. Is that the correct way to pronounce his That's name? That's the way I, I've heard it's supposed I, to be pronounced You're my baseball, baseball historian. I would, I would trust you on that. You know, school kids forever have learned the <laughs> tinkers to Evers to chance. But I, I believe you and I have pronounced it. In any event, their second baseman, Mr. Evers um, – The crab. Was, was a, an established star. And he, in a way, was a free agent signing uh, for the team before there was such a thing yeah. that, that he came along. Uh, but the point is, this was a team that really didn't have stars other than those two guys, um, and they managed to put it together, which, again, is why it's an inspiration for, for managing to put together a roster that where everybody competes, everybody participates, has contributes what they have, um, and you still got to have great pitching. You're just not going to win mm-hmm. unless you either just pound the ball um, although that's usually not the recipe for success. We can talk about some of our Atlanta Braves teams that did that and still didn't win. Yes. It was only when the Braves got three great starting pitchers, of course. Here I am going ahead to the 90 Braves. <laughs> but it's, but three excellent starting pitchers will take you a long way, right? Yes, and, and I think that is one of the big lessons of the 1914 Braves. And I want to get more into bigger lessons. But uh, first, I want to take a moment to tell all of our listeners to go visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash leisure. If you want to help us create more of the Channel 17 podcast, to help us create more of the What Happened Today podcast, and many others. And if you go to Patreon right now and subscribe before December 1st, at any level, you will get the very first Productive Leisure Network t-shirt currently being worked on. But if you give it the $5 level, you will also get exclusive access to the What Happened That Year podcast coming in early December, being worked on right now by me. And uh, if you give it the $10 level, you'll get the uh, 
exclusive ability to get a shout out by me on any podcast of your choosing. The other important thing about helping us out on Patreon is that it will allow us to create new things in the future and figure it out. And it lets you know that, um, and it lets us know that you are helping us and that you want to support us to do more podcasts. So again, it's pr- patreon.com slash productive leisure. Uh, you can also help us, I want to say right now, if you share us on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, however you communicate with people, let us know about it. Also go to our Facebook and Twitter and uh, follow us, like us, friend us, all those fun things that social media does at Prod Leisure. Um, and we hope that you will help us out as we continue this series of looking at Braves teams. And you said you can't help but bring forth the 90s Braves at all, which is funny because I'm the one who actually grew up only on them. You had a lot of bad Braves teams. Oh. So, you know, it is interesting thinking about the difference that this is not a talented roster from 1914. Right. But that's what's so encouraging about it. It's possible to put together a pennant-winning, World Series-winning team at any point, and no matter how bad your team is, um, a a miracle can happen. It's not really a miracle. They did the things that they needed to do to win enough games to win. um, But It was was a miracle because they were so far behind. (laughs) To be not only 12 and a half games out of first place halfway through the season, but to have to pass every other team in the league to get to first is, I mean, other teams have come from, you know, 12 and 13 games back the Braves came from that far back, even in '93, to catch the Giants at one point. And you know, but they caught the Giants, but not mi- seven other teams. Exactly. To pa- and not only that, they ended up winning by over ten games. It was just a phenomenal three months of baseball, is what it was. But um, anything can happen. Well, and there are questions which I think might be more instructive for some of these later teams. But who would you say was the MVP of this team? And you can't say George Stallings, even though clearly the manager was the guy who put it together. You know, managers don't. I mean, I, I think having a good manager makes a difference, but most people would agree that managers usually only make just a difference in a handful of games. But having a roster like this and rearranging and platooning and using people when, when they were hot and against the right pitcher, uh, which he apparently did pretty much throughout the year, at least the second half, really was revolutionary. But you said I couldn't name Stalling, no. so I won't. I'll name a player. Um, I'll actually go with the young pitcher, Bill James. Uh, from what I've read about this team, he was the best of their three starting pitchers. It looked like he he might have been heading for a Hall of Fame career. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he did not um, really do much of anything after that. But uh, without any of their three best starting pitchers, they probably wouldn't have done it. But he was, he was the best of the three. And, and I'll give the credit there. He, I'll go over his stats before I challenge you on this point. He went 26-7 and seven with a 1-9-0 ERA. Uh, perhaps those stats have come to have less meaning, but I think those are still eye-popping numbers, right. even out of the era and everything else. Uh, that does translate to a 150 ERA plus, keeping mind it's a dead ball. In 332 and a third innings stretched out over 46 games, 37 starts. He had 30 complete games, four shutouts, three saves I mean it is a different era he did only strike out 156 people didn't strike out back then that just didn't happen and he walked 3.2 but he didn't give up home runs right I mean no one did at the time but even for that he was pretty low 
only about point two. The, and the reason I named a pitcher, and I chose James because I think he was the best, offensively, really nobody was a standout. There wasn't anybody on the team um, that was that was near the top of the league in any offensive categories. You mentioned Joe Connolly, the outfielder. He was in the top ten in a few offensive care categories. Uh, Moranville was eighth in the league in RBIs with what you said before, 78. But mm-hmm. that, that's just because he had some guys on base in front of him, including Evers, who was fourth in the league in walks, um, ninth in run scored. But anyway, those aren't MVP-type numbers for, for a team. So um, that, that I think it's got to be the pitching. But this team, maybe more than any we're used to, um, shows the importance of defense. I, mean, I, I was going to say it's Johnny Evers. He Okay. He managed to score 81 runs uh, in 139 games for a team that only scored in total 657. Wow, that's an impressive percentage. Yeah. Um, while, I mean, he basically got on base. It says he stole 12 bases, uh, so he wasn't really going that much. But he really had an ability to kind of get the team going. He was apparently a leader uh, on the field. Although he was manic, something about him had settled at the age of 32. But, I mean, there isn't the kind of thing where you look at it and go, well, that guy just knocked the tar out of the ball, other than Joe Connolly, who did it out of nowhere. He hit 306 in an era where people were hitting, like, 250. Right. But the point there is, uh, offensively, there really wasn't – there there weren't standouts – it was the pitching and the defense. And Moranville maybe should have been the, the MVP. Uh, apparently, he, he finished second in the league to Evers, actually. Apparently, most of his teammates thought that Rabbit should have gotten, and I think that was based largely on his defense. Because uh, And there, there are two things that I want to talk about. One is the World Series that happened uh, with this Braves team, which actually, in a way, isn't that interesting other than they beat the A's. But Hank Gowdy had a fantastic World Series Less in his overall stats and more in he had like every important hit in a low scoring right. sweep. Yeah, we're uh, talking about Gowdy not being a great offensive player, but in that World Series, he was yeah. pretty phenomenal. Uh, but the other thing that I do want to talk about, uh, and since you wanted to land on Rabbit Marinville, mm-hmm. there has never been anyone quite like him. If I think that everybody should know about the 1914 Braves, I think people should honor George Stallings as a baseball genius. But if people can learn anything from this, it's that Randville was one of the best characters in baseball history. Tell us more, Will. (laughs) His regular way of catching a fly ball was the shirt pocket catch, where he'd let it hit him in the chest by the shirt pocket, and the ball would then roll down his chest into his glove. Just for fun. Think about trying that. (laughs) You'd get kicked off your little league team if you did. Uh, He would also occasionally mimic the umpire in a boring game. So the guy would be standing at second base, and if he moved his hat and stroked his hair back, Rabbit would do the same. Uh, he also, while manager of the Cubs in 1925, as a player manager, went up and down trains throwing ice on people. He was just, he was all around amazing. He also played forever, largely thanks to Bill McKechnie, who he hooked up with a little bit later. Well, he was never a great offensive player, but apparently he really was an excellent defensive player for a very long time. And, and no manager other, has ever been more obsessed with defense than Bill McKechnie. Yeah. And he kept using Rabbit Marinville for no good in reason. In fact, Rabbit Marinville played more games than any National League player in history before Pete Rose, who played forever. So mm-hmm. he held that record for 50 years. And, and I do think 
you know, if you went back in time and watched the 1914 Braves, there are the obvious differences. It was not integrated. Right. Uh, the uniforms would be different. The fields would be kind of weird. They were playing at essentially a thrice rebuilt 19th century ballpark, which was a grandstand on a field, the South End grounds, until actually they became so good and so popular they moved into Fenway, which was new that year. Yeah, you know, the, we think of Fenway's window in the Grand Old Park, which it is, but it was brand new that year, and it turns out, I, I read this, that in, in August, as the Braves were doing so phenomenally well, they were drawing huge crowds, the owner of the Red Sox said, well, here, you can use Fenway for the, all your home games the rest of the way. And into the World Series. Right. Uh, and then the next year actually repaid the favor because they built the giant Braves Field, which apparently was one of the worst ballparks ever. It was insanely huge always. I think when it opened, it was like 380 down the lines and 420 to power alleys or something like that. I don't have it in front of me. Mm-hmm. But it was it, the Braves owner then said, well, triple is the most exciting thing in this sport. <laughs> and he decided the way to have triples was long fences. That's not the way to have triples. Yeah. Way to have triples is weird little joints sticking out. Funny bounces. Right. Like. Uh, and the 1914 Braves really never came close after that. The, 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 the 1914 Braves are a great inspirational story for franchises that aren't doing well, like the Braves the last couple of years, that it is possible to turn around and sometimes do it in a hurry. But they're also a cautionary tale and that that the success was so fleeting. They were lousy again as early as the next year and never competed again. In fact, they never even went to the World Series again for another, it was over 30 years, right? 1948. And I actually wonder if the lesson here might be you do need talent to succeed. I think that's right. I mean, it it was a miracle and in some ways it was a fluke. You can't expect a miracle every year. I mean, it wasn't really miraculous. They had a lot of guys really contributing well and a manager that knew what he was doing and pitchers pitching above their heads. Um, but you can't sustain that year after year. The teams that are that have sustained excellence for, for long periods of time, like our Atlanta Braves of the last quarter century, um, put together teams that have just a lot of good players. And then if some players don't play as well, you got others you can turn to. you got a good farm system. Um, yeah, just, and just, we're going to get into the Braves' 90s dynasty later on in this offseason. But that was built through the farm system with some key pieces you know johnny evers was important he was also a 32 year old who had annoyed half the league and they were able to get him cheap right uh the outfielders didn't really have a future the pitchers could have been better but they got hurt well that's that's the other cautionary tale um you know that they those three starting pitchers pitched 66 percent of all innings that year I, i looked it up um, they pitched 940 innings just among the three of them. And in August, McGraw, the manager of the Giants, said, the Braves are playing well, but I'm not worried. Those three guys are going to burn out. He Turns was out- right after the World Series. <laughs> right. They held after on. After the 1914 World Series, Mack was correct. Yeah. but um, And that's, that's the point. Um, you, you, if you're relying on a handful of pitchers, pitchers do get hurt. They got hurt in 1914. They get hurt in 1916. Um, some pitchers do, some don't, but it, you, if you're relying on just a couple of pitchers, you're probably well, in trouble. Well, and it's also, I think why pitchers get hurt has been one of the big talking points in baseball recently. It might just be because they're pitching. I, I, it's an unnatural thing for a human arm to do, and you do that very long. Um, we, we can talk another day about whether, you know, innings, 
pitched over the course of a season, pitch counts in a game, how much difference that makes. Well, they didn't care about any of that stuff back then. They just run guys I out will there say over this. and over. We're going to talk about people like Buzz Capra and Steve Avery, which well, might true. be better. We have a lot of lessons. good examples and ones that I actually um, know something about personally. <laughs> but I, I think the other thing that's amazing about the 1914 Braves is that they were the miracle team really until the 69 Mets came along. So also, let's reclaim their memory because screw the Mets. Exactly. Uh, but I think if you, I encourage any of our listeners to go back and look at some of the things because it really is unbelievable. And the other sort of background thing at the time was the Federal League had started in 1914. The Federal League had not actually gotten that many players to go. Uh, what the actual one of the most notable was Evers old double play partner Joe Tinker, but. They kind of got some lower-level guys to move over, and then they were threatening salaries, and salaries went up. And so not only did Connie Mack lose to the Braves in 1914, he decided after that season he could no longer afford the contracts of players like Eddie Collins and Homer and Baker. And he sold them off. Right. And it kind of leads to the Black Sox scandal because... Salaries went up, people bought them, and they turned. Collins was actually one of the clean socks, rather notably so. Um, but it's interesting to think about this was sort of the earth-shattering moment in baseball in one way on the field that never worked out. But also various things happened after the Braves won the 1914 World Series, some because of them, some because of the nature of the game otherwise, that really turned the game around. Um, and they were kind of the last dead ball miracle team right um, other teams would figure out that I mean this is kind of the blueprint to be a miracle team well, well apparently platooning took off as early as the next year again according to Bill James not the pitcher the writer Bill James uh, as of 1915 most teams mm-hmm. were, were platooning that is having at least one position where they played multiple players depending on handedness and if you have slightly better players doing that your platoon is more effective <laughs> right um, is the other thing that's interesting. That's, that's the money ball, you know, stay one step ahead of everybody, figure out where the market inefficiency is in a way, but um, people do catch up. Well, and the other thing that I really want to land on with this is that the 1914 Braves stand out in a lot of ways, but also it's the template for the Miracle Team. Yeah. Good young pitching that kind of comes together with a good defense and just enough offense. That's what the 67 Red Sox did, the 69 Mets, the 91 Braves, Braves. the 2001 A's, the 2008 Rays. These teams were all sort of this. We figure out, and we'll talk really in detail about the 91 Braves, but it's also sorting out your defense sometimes to say let's improve everywhere. And I think it's a lesson that we think about. Well, if you got all these hitters, you might get somewhere. But Braves tried that right for 25 years. It didn't work. By 91, they tried a different approach. There were other problems. Well, true. <laughs> I mean, they had guys who couldn't hit Orfield. Oh, I, there were plenty of years the Braves, <laughs> pre-91 Braves, were no good at any place. But there were a few years where they clobbered the ball, and they still didn't win. Yeah. Uh, but we will get to all that because it, looking this is forward the start. To it. Uh, I think you might have uh, more knowledge about our next topic, even though it's not Atlanta, because the 1957 Braves – were really the template for it. Right. And at some point, the Atlanta Crackers were a Braves farm team or had some 
thing. At least Eddie Matthews, we know, will get into the stories. We'll talk about that next week, but I'm looking forward to talking about the great Milwaukee team of 1957. Um, that really was a dynasty. That was not a fluke. They only won one World Series, but they were the best team in the National League for four, four or five, five years, years at really. least. Um, and we'll talk about you know lineup construction and roster construction and maintaining a team for a long time when we talk about that great team. Also, we'll get to talk about Hank Aaron for the first well, time. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, Still the greatest player of all time. After that, we'll get seriously into Atlanta and beginning with 1966 and moving along. And uh, we hope you will join us with all of these. Uh, this is kind of a setup, but we think it will build because they'll be a little closer to our hearts. As Every much as I we'll love the 1914 closer. Braves. Um, but that will do it for this week's episode of the channel 17 podcast but as always tune in with us next week to listen to our next episode and find all of all of the episodes of this podcast and all the productive leisure network podcasts on our website productiveleisurenetwork.com and on itunes and stitcher please if you're listening to us on itunes and stitcher leave a rating leave a review subscribe to this podcast you can also help us out, as I mentioned earlier, on Patreon, patreon.com slash Productive Leisure. And again, if you want to be able to get one of our first t-shirts, go ahead and uh, support us now. And if you want to keep getting the What Happened That Year podcast, you can go and give it the $5, 10 or $25 levels. You can also follow us for updates on everything to do with the Productive Leisure Network on Facebook and Twitter, at Prod Leisure. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.